If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7 for our message this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Also for you, uh, you, you Bible users on your phone, I think there's going to be uh, you techie types in heaven just along with the, uh, the Bible thumpers. So I open up to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And um, I want to introduce what we're talking about today by talking about trust. The most basic level of any relationship is trust. And that becomes really important in our relationship with the Lord. The question we're always asking ourselves in any relationship without actually asking that question in that space, in that relationship, is can I trust this person? And this becomes really important with our relationship with God. And so today, this passage and this sermon is about having us remember God's faithfulness. And this is important Because when we remember God's faithfulness to us in the past, our trust in God grows in the present, and it prepares us for the future. This passage is incredibly important to me and my wife uh, because in it we find a great deal of hope and trust in our Lord. On February 25th, as the tornadoes were slamming into this community and destroying homes, my wife was beset with incredible, excruciating pain. Rushing to the doctor, rushing to the emergency room, we found ourselves, my wife found herself, experiencing all the classic symptoms of a miscarriage. And this was a truly horrible experience for us. We believed that our child had died. And come to find out, it wasn't a miscarriage. Praise the Lord for that. And yet, as we're processing this, we realized in our heart's prayers and our thanksgiving, we, we started saying that God had been faithful to us. And he had. He had, he had delivered us. He had, he had spared life. He had preserved life. But I, I noticed something, that even had our son died, God would still have been faithful. His faithfulness is not determined by whether or not our child would have lived or died. And one day when our son does die, God will still be faithful, whether it's in utero or in the world. And so we took this this message, this concept of God's faithfulness to heart, and we were able to say from this passage, till now, God has helped us. And we saw from this passage, the Ebenezer Stone, that till now, God has helped us in this pregnancy. And so we decided that we would name our son Stone. His name is Stone. Because in his living or dying, we want our son to be a beacon of hope and remembrance for us of God's faithfulness. But in his living or dying, we want him to be a witness to the world that God is faithful. So with that, I'd like to have you turn to 1 Samuel 7 and let us read our passage together this morning. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and Ashtoreth from among you, And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Israel, or I'm sorry, then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty, with a thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I ask that you would help all of us to remember your faithfulness. And if we have not trusted in you and seen your faithfulness in our lives and seen the magnificence of the cross demonstrating your love for your people, I pray that you would bring people into that relationship today. I pray that in this time, Lord, you would comfort those who are struggling, who are doubting, who are afflicted. I pray that you would also disrupt those who are too comfortable and that the gospel message would go forward for your glory and for your renown. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, we're going to look at how this passage shows us the nature of true idolatry. We're going to look at true repentance, and we're going to look at true faithfulness. So to begin, I want to talk about true idolatry. And since Samuel is a narrative book, it's, it's literally a story as much as the Old Testament is, it would be foolish for us to come into chapter 7 without understanding what's happened so far. That's part of why we read chapter 2 earlier, okay? And so this, like any novel, it would be foolish to pick it up about a quarter of the way through and assume that we're going to understand the story so far. So that's where we're coming in, looking at Samuel 2, as, as we read earlier. What we probably don't catch from that passage is the extreme blasphemy that the priests were guilty of. That probably seems so distant to our ears now and how the people were relating to the Lord and worship and that's, that's to be expected. We're just not highly attuned to that. But what these guys were guilty of was everything from theft to greed to intimidating the people, ultimately resulting in spiritual abuse, taking advantage of them and promoting themselves over the people and servicing uh, themselves instead of serving them. They were guilty of sexual promiscuity, if not rape itself. And they were guilty of idolatry. And this represents the people of Israel. This represents God's people. And as we see in this passage, the people of Israel are called to repent, and they're, they're seen to be worshiping other gods. They're seen to be worshiping Baals and Ashtaroth. And now, these may be uh, actual idols of wood and stone that they're physically bowing down to. That may be the case. But what I want you to catch is that these, these gods represent something else. You ever heard the expression, no rain, no grain? Right. So for people who are farmers, this is a pretty big deal. Baal was the god of the storm, so he was the one who brought about rain, which is really important to crops. And the Ashtra was the god of the fertility, and so that was also really important. So this is, this is what this is representing is their economic lives. This is representing their financial world, their security, their comfort. And so what's happening here is they're ultimately revealing they have heart idols that are not to depend on the Lord, but ultimately to promote themselves and to be their own gods. And I think that with if we're actually checking in with ourselves, we can see all of those things in our own hearts and our own lives because these are heart-level idols. 
An idol is not necessarily a piece of wood and stone that we bow down to or a golden calf. An idol is anything that has our affection more than God himself. And I think as, as Americans, certainly I'm guilty of this, comfort, pleasure, security, wealth. These are all idols that I have. I can own that. And so as we read this passage, I want you to read yourself into it as the people of Israel, because that's who we are. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the church and Israel, we are these people, and we're guilty of half-hearted worship and idolatry just the same way that they are. And the result of that is, is that we should be under God's displeasure and punishment. We should be banished. We should be killed. And yet, we have a God who is faithful, who brings us back to himself. And so, this morning, I just want to ask you as we begin, where do you see that in your own heart? Where do you see in your own life a daily pursuit of something that has the appearance of, uh, or the promise it offers you of making you happy, of giving you joy, of giving you peace? Where do you see in your own heart the way of serving something that will return something to you? Where do you see the idols of your own heart? I think this is really important because as we see our own true idolatry, it should drive us to true repentance. And so I want us to look at chapters, uh, chapter 7, verse 3 through 6, and we're going to see how true repentance manifests itself in this passage. So as this passage has uh, continued to flow from where we read earlier in chapter 2, um, God had removed his symbolic presence from the people by removing the Ark of the Covenant and had allowed the people to fall into uh, defeat from the, the Philistines. And here in chapter 7, verse 2, it says that all the house of Israel was lamenting after the Lord. And this is after the Lord had restored the ark to them, had brought his symbolic presence and blessing back to the people. And so Samuel then says something really fascinating. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. What I want you to catch here is the idea of if, okay? So he's seeing that they are lamenting after the Lord. There's a weeping, there's an emotion, but he's saying that doesn't necessarily mean you're truly repenting. I'm going to call you to do that with all your heart, because the only way that you can truly repent is doing it with all of your heart. And so he gives them an exact way of doing that. He shows them that that involves confession, worship, and service, and with all of those things, we have God's promise of his faithfulness to forgive. So we see the confession in this way. He says, put away the foreign gods and the astra from among you. They're worshiping these idols. They're, they're literally worshiping these idols because they want the economic growth and prosperity. They want the comforts that we want as well. He says, put them away. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see exactly how this happens. He says, then Samuel said, gather all Israel and Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. This is a picture of fasting. This is a picture of self-denial uh, so that they have dependency on the Lord. And they say, we have sinned against the Lord. They see it. They know that they are guilty of idol worship. And so he's saying what you need to do is you need to name your idols and you need to remove them. He's calling them to a full confession. John Calvin says that our hearts are actually idol factories such that as soon as we name one idol over here, it might be money, it might be prosperity, whatever the case may be. As soon as we dethrone that idol in our lives, because our hearts are idol factories, we just produce new ones. 
And that's going to drive us to a place where we need to be continually confessing of our idols. Some of us, it would probably do well, all of us really, to just confess the fact that we don't like to confess. That's probably a good place to start. We could probably end the sermon right there and just say, we don't really like to repent. And in fact, we, we like to do it so little that we don't really do it. So, true repentance, in this sense, demands absolute and radical confession. It, it, it demands that we examine our hearts and our lives. But we also see him calling us to worship. And he says that by saying, direct your heart to the Lord. This is all coming from verse 3. Direct your heart to the Lord. And in the scriptures, the heart is seen as the core of our being, the very essence of who we are. And so he's saying, direct that very essence of who you are into worshiping God. That's a pretty big thing to say. And I don't think he's just saying to do that on a Sunday morning. He's saying to do that in all of life and not in a half-hearted way, but to do that in a full and robust, complete way that we would worship the Lord in all that we do. And I think this also includes how we actually pursue the Lord in the way that we go about doing that. Deuteronomy 6 is a fantastic passage that helps us understand this. You can flip over there, but I'm going to read it for us. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, listen to this. This is directing your heart. He says, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them on uh, as a sign on your hand and you shall have them as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. This is a picture of totality. This is a picture of absolute conviction and directing everything that we have towards living our lives in a worshipful way towards God, directing our whole essence and being towards Him. That's what this is calling us to. So true repentance involves turning away from idols towards our God and worship, worshiping Him truly. So it's pretty hard to do this. It's pretty hard to worship God truly as he deserves if we have other gods that we're worshiping, right? So we have to denounce our, our idols and we have to worship the Lord truly. He also tells us to serve him only. He says, serve him only. And I think this is just a picture of how our life should not be the same after we repent. We are supposed to forfeit our agenda for his agenda. No one can swear ultimate allegiance to more than one king. That's the idea here. It's either him or it's us. So we're called to worship and obey. God accepts you as you are, but he loves you enough to not leave you as you are. So we should live a life that reflects God's kingdom after we are confronted with our sin and brought into true worship and true service of that king. And if you want a test case for this, just look around you and evaluate how are you doing at loving the bride of Christ? How are you looking, how are you doing at loving the world around you, the very people around you? Jesus says, if you would follow after me, take up your cross daily and follow me. So if you want to serve the Lord and you want to evaluate how you're doing at serving the Lord, evaluate how you're doing at serving those around you. It's a really tangible way of us checking in on that. So true repentance involves true life change and true living worship through service to God. And the beautiful thing about this is that it comes with a promise. And he says this in verse 3, and, if you, and, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
I want you to catch something here, that the Philistines, they're, they're all over the Old Testament, but they're really inconsequential. They really don't matter all that much. What matters is that we understand that they are a tool in God's hands to help his people see their sin. He is an element of judgment on God, on, on God's people, so that they would see him and his faithfulness. And in this case, God shows how zealous he is for their full hearts, that their hearts would be set on him alone for worship. And so this is a case of a specific deliverance, that the people cry out to the Lord after repenting of all of their sin, and the Lord delivers them, right? He does. He literally delivers them. But what I want you to catch is that this points to a far greater spiritual reality, that God delivers his people and forgives them. That God, in our lives, in the world around us, God is faithful to deliver anyone who truly confesses that he is the Lord. And so God gives us forgiveness. And he relates to us not with anger where we deserve, but he relates to us with love. First John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God's faithful to forgive. So this is a picture of true repentance, and true repentance is never partial in nature. It always involves radical confession, radical worship, and radical life change, and it comes with this radical promise of forgiveness. And here's the best part. This isn't about how hard you try. This isn't about how hard you try to have faith in God and how much you try to see your sin and repent and all these things. This is not really of us at all. This only happens because God's divine grace given to us in offering us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says that God gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. So all of this is not about how good you are and how, how much you try. This is about God's grace to us in creating in us actual life and creating in us a new sense of being and enabling us to even see our sins so that we can confess. Praise the Lord for that. I have a friend of mine who's in another church. Uh, he's a pastor, and he um, says that that church encourages the people to come to the pastors to confess their sins. It makes us uncomfortable, I think, to think about that, because that sounds like Catholicism, and this is actually not a Catholic, Catholic church. This is a Reformed church. But he says they invite people to come to confess, and he says all can, some should, but none must. And I think that's a beautiful picture of us just trying to understand who we are, how we're sinning, and have someone to speak to and guide us towards repentance. Not with slaps on the wrist, but encouragement and love and assurance of God's forgiveness and grace. So don't do it necessarily with me, although you certainly can, and I would enjoy that, but do it with each other. What would it be like for us to confess our sins to each other and escort each other towards true life and repentance and to see God show up in our lives and forgive us for the ways that we have been idolatrous. To help, to help us even see our idolatry, we may need to ask somebody. I'm, I'm scared to ask my wife, where do you see idols in my life right now? Because I don't want her to speak the truth to me. So we also see in this passage true faithfulness. And what I want you to catch is that when we have true confession, we see God's true faithfulness. That's how this works. That's how we relate to God. That's how he engages his people, that he is faithful to an unfaithful people. 
true faithfulness. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. You know why? Because they just got their butts kicked. And you know why else? They really didn't know if God was going to spare them. They really didn't know. They were in a place of doubt. They had just suffered tremendously. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Please, please do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The only weapon these people had was prayer. They were desperate. And I want you to see in this some permission for your own life, for you to struggle, for you to have doubts, for you to be beset with things that are warring in your heart and and complicating your lives, that God doesn't expect us to be all together and have it all figured out. He actually expects us to be just where they are, to be forgetful and to be unfaithful and at times to just doubt. And that's okay. I mean, I would wonder how many of you currently feel forgotten by God. How many of you have had something happen in your life that causes you to truly doubt God's goodness and wonder if he really cares about your life? We need to remember that it's not about this life that God ultimately cares about us, but rather, Romans 8, 28, for we know that God loves us and does all things according to our good so that we can be drawn in a closer relationship with him. And so, we need to remember just that. And it says, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. This is the true God of the storm. This isn't Baal. This this idea of God thundering and using nature, this is a picture in the Old Testament of God's divine intervention. And so they would have known that. The Philistines knew that when God thundered, they were already defeated, and they were scattered. And the men of Israel went out, it says in verse 11, from Mizpah, and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Bethkar. This highlights how God keeps his promises. He had just said earlier in the passage that if you really repent, I will deliver you. Remember, this is, this is the, the Philistines are inconsequential. This is about God's wanting his people to worship him because he knows that that's what they need. He wants their full hearts And so this is a story, this is a picture of our spiritual relationships that points to God's ultimate way of relating to us, of forgiving us when we are actually unforgivable. So this is a story of true faithfulness because God forgives his people. And this really highlights throughout the Old Testament how God sees us constantly in cycles of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, New Testament, sin and repentance. You know, Peter He's so forgetful. He's so foolish. We don't remember how much God loves us. We don't remember how good he is and how powerful he is. We're so tending towards forgetting, and yet God is faithful. And he, he causes us to remember in a really beautiful way because he knows we're unfaithful, and he knows that we're uh, a forgetful people. In verse 12, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and called its name 
Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. This is a really beautiful place in scripture, and I've already expressed to you how this means so much to me and my family, because it says, till now God has helped us, and I found personal reasons in my life for that to be true. But this word Ebenezer, it really means a stone of help. And what he's doing here is he's following after many different instances in the Old Testament where we're called to remember God's faithfulness. So it looks back. He's looking back over the entire story of God's redemptive history so far and saying, God has been faithful. Not just in this isolated instance, but he's been faithful in everything so far to bring us to himself. But this stone is a marker. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look forward to the day that these people need that assurance once again because they're prone to wander. They are going to fall into apostasy. They're going to continue to struggle. But they need to remember that God is faithful. There's a great quote by a commentator. He says, We stand in the present, but dwell in the past in order that we can be steadfast in the future. I really like that. I really like that. And I really like how God is so gracious that he calls us to, his, to, to see his faithfulness, and he's patient in our forgetfulness, and he gives us these ways of remembering him. Here's a couple ways. Uh, the Passover. Uh, the Passover is a story where God, in, in, in unbelievable, miraculous ways, delivers his people from the hands of the Egyptians. And as a response to that, they're supposed to have a feast. They're supposed to eat certain things. They're supposed to wear certain things and act a certain way all through this feast, and they're supposed to reorient their entire calendar around this, and this is basically supposed to be January 1st. When God gives the people manna to eat, he asks them to keep some of it as a memorial. In Joshua 3 and 4, when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, a picture of God's faithfulness that they got there, he asked them to erect stones, 12 stones, to remember and commemorate this event. So what Samuel is asking us to do is something that he's seen throughout the Old Testament, that he, we should have memorials that we see how God has been faithful to us. And the reason is simply this. We have poor memories, we have busy lives, we experience pain, and ultimately we're unfaithful and forgetful people. So God's true faithfulness is seen most clearly in how he deals with his unfaithful people. That's us. He is so faithful. And we ultimately see how he gives us a faithful priest. In chapter 2, verse 35, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, not like Eli's sons, not like Eli himself. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I want you to understand that Samuel partially fulfills that. Samuel is raised up. Hannah's prayer shows exactly what this is going to look like. And he partially fulfills this because he escorts his people to God, doesn't he? He is the one who helps with the intercession to bring them to a place of confession and repentance and worship and service. And it's through him that we see this promise lived out and enacted that God would be faithful to these people, faithful to forgive. We see Samuel offers a sacrifice for the people, and what does it do? It symbolically takes away the sins of the people. It's a but ultimately, we know that this is fulfilled in Christ. That God has raised up a different faithful priest, a true faithful priest. And the difference is between that of symbolism and that of reality, right? 
So a symbol is a representation of something, like a picture. A picture is a representation of something else. Samuel is a representation of what is to come. Samuel gives us a picture of the true and faithful priest that is to come. That's Jesus, because he's a, a perfect, faithful priest who takes us to God, because he offers us actual forgiveness. It's not a symbol. It's actual forgiveness because he offers himself as a true and perfect sacrifice, which actually atones for sins and actually offers forgiveness. So God wants us to remember his faithfulness, and he gives us all of these different ways of remembering that faithfulness. He wants us to know that he cares and that he's active in our lives. He wants us to remember the ways that he delivers us and in these circumstances, like in what I told you about earlier and the fact that we didn't have this miscarriage, that, that shows me in that moment that God cares about my life. But ultimately, this world is not our home. God is so much more concerned about my heart and drawing myself close to him and showing me in a tangible form that he forgives me for my sin. All of these things are spiritual pictures of what God does in his relationship with us. And the greatest of all of these stones, these commemorations, all of these ways of remembering God, he gives us a symbol in the cross. And then Jesus, he tells us to do this feast together, this meal, the Lord's Supper. And he says, do this in remembrance for me. And when we do that feast, when we have the Lord's Supper, when we commemorate all that he has done in his life and death and resurrection, we are remembering God is faithful to his people because that looks back at all the ways that God has brought us to himself and it looks forward to all the ways that God is going to continue to draw us close to himself and ultimately prove himself to be faithful as he brings the new kingdom to us. So we trust our God. We can trust our God and we can know that he is working all things for good, drawing us closer to himself. So let me just say, I would love to encourage us as a congregation to think back and remember the ways that God has showed up in your life, answered prayers, uh, offered you healing, uh, perhaps provided for you a new car or what have you. I want you to remember those things and possibly share those stories with each other because that's the body growing together. That's iron sharpening iron. And that's a beautiful picture of us worshiping together as we just share the testimony of how God has been faithful to us. Remember the day of of, of you acknowledging yourself to be unworthy of God's love and how you found his acceptance and grace, your testimony. Think of that day. That is a beacon. That is a marker. That is a stone of remembrance for you to always trust in God's faithfulness and know that you are loved and that your salvation and your relationship with him is assured. I invite you to maybe celebrate these things every year as God had instituted in the Old Testament with the Lord's Supper, that we would have these physical realities to help us remember the ways that God has been faithful to us. Put them on your calendar and celebrate those things with a special feast. Go get a cheeseburger or something. God is faithful to an unfaithful people. Let's pray.